0: Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church. We are delighted you have chosen to listen in today. It's our hope the message of Jesus will continue to spread and bear fruit, both in your life and the world around us. For more digital content, feel free to check us out on the web at calvarybcmoultrie.com. And now for today's message. In our society, innovation and ingenuity are considered necessary. Innovation and ingenuity. Maybe you're not familiar with those words. Something new, something fresh, something better than it was in the past. Whether it be from marketing or finances, whether it be from coaching to fashion. We're always looking for the new and better way to accomplish our goals. And we must keep up to date, right, if we want to stay ahead of the competition Now, in the world of business and and fashion and finance, those things are good. Those things are necessary to keep the edge. But we need to understand that followers of Christ, we are a different type of people. We're not always looking for the new and better way. We actually believe that we're holding fast to something that was before the foundations of the world itself. We're holding fast to a plan that was orchestrated from the beginning of beginnings. And it's a plan and it's a purpose that magnifies god himself but what i find interesting is that what is it within us like you and me that we always like to be one step ahead of the competition one step ahead of our siblings one step ahead of those we see day in and day out i mean who doesn't want to be one step ahead of the competition right who doesn't want a little bit better way to do things well, actually, this reality reveals within and in us a deep, dark monster lying in wait in all of us. We call it pride. Pride is the arch enemy that keeps all people from receiving and rejoicing God's work. Pride is the arch enemy of you, of me. Of anyone you will encounter in your day-to-day existence, anyone who has ever existed, pride is the archenemy of receiving God's work. Pride is considered throughout God's word to be something God opposes. No, it actually says God hates pride. Have you ever asked yourself why? Why does the Bible have such strong words about this concept we call pride? One pastor once has said that that pride is regarded as one of the gravest of sins because where other sins in Scripture kind of separate us from God, pride actually places us above God. This is one of the reasons we see it is loathed by God. Pride attempts to place us in God's seat. And today in the book of Numbers, we have a scene set before us in three chapters where we see pride front-ended and the implications of it. We're going to see its devastating effects, but we're also going to see God's gracious provision that must be received in humility. Look there again with me at God's word as we make our way through these three chapters together. If you're taking notes, we're, we're going to see verse in chapter 16, pride distorts God's plan and rejects his terms. Then we'll see at the latter part of chapter 16 and verse 17, God confirms his ways and declares his terms. And then finally we see in chapter 18 a really unique way, an illustration of what humility is and how we in humility receive and rejoice in God's plans. Let's look at God's word together. Start with me there again in verse 1. It says, Now Korah the son of Ishkar, the son of Koath, the son of Levi, so right here, we're, we've just finished this, this scene that we've seen, a, a message of grace in chapter 15, and we're, we're told of these three particular men, one of them who is a son of Levi. Now, if you are familiar with your scripture, Levi is one of the 12 sons of Israel. But we know, once the Lord rescued them from Egypt, out of Pharaoh's reign, he says, I'm going to set you apart, Levi. You're going to be my people. You're going to become my portion. And, and we can remember from the beginning part of Numbers. That we see this. So this is not just any ordinary person. This is someone who has already been set apart in a very particular way. We also see the, the names of Dathan and Abiram, who are also sons of Reuben. Now, now when we think of Reuben, I want you to think, where is he in the birth order? He's first. He's the firstborn of, of Israel. Alright, And one of the things we need to understand about the firstborn in this culture is they typically have what? Everything. They typically are the leader of the home. They typically are the ones who take the highest seat and position when it comes to things. And so we see these particular men and intentionally the Moses is reminding us of who they were, where they've come from. But one of the things we need to pay attention to is what they say against Moses. Look there with me again at verse three. What do they say against Moses and Aaron? It says they assembled together and now these three men plus 250 other people Other chiefs among the congregation and they stand together against Moses and Aaron and hear what they say. You've gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? See, one of the things pride does within all human hearts, pride does not listen but thinks it already knows. Pride does not listen, but thinks it already knows. Because if you're familiar, if you're familiar with the scriptures, or if you've been here while we've been studying Numbers, God's already laid out the purpose of the the people of Korah. God's already laid out the purpose of Reuben. He's already said, this is what you're going to be. This is who Moses is. This is who Aaron is. And these men didn't listen. Because pride welled up within their hearts. Because they think they know a better way. See, Korah's complaint is highlighted there. It says, we're all holy. And you've gone too far, Moses. What's interesting, isn't it? That we need to remember the Korahites weren't just anybody of the Levites. They were given basically the second rank below the priests. They were the ones instructed in Numbers 4 to carry the holies of holy things. They were the ones who carried the ark. They were the ones who carried everything that lied within the holy of holies. They were basically second-tier priests in some level. They were just below the priests, the ones who would enter in, the ones who would do the sacrifice. They were better than probably all the other branches and clans within Levi, as far as what they were called to do. But they wanted just a little bit more. They wanted to be priests themselves and as we've seen in numbers it's kind of interesting we've seen this pattern repeat that often what we ask for god sometimes what gives us we've seen this repeat time and time again in the book of numbers and so we see here in in verse four moses says okay guys you want to be priests grab your censer fill it with fire and let's go before the tabernacle tomorrow because the censer was was one of the tasks given to the priest and the priest only a censer was a way that they would um, take the the altar, um, the, the flame of the altar, they'd put it on there, and they would put an incense, and it would be a pleasing aroma unto the Lord. And, and the priests were called to do this in a variety of different ways. And so Moses looks at these guys and says, Okay, guys, you think you can come to the Lord on your own. You want to take that risk. Go ahead. Let's show up before the Lord tomorrow. You take your censers. Aaron will take his censer, and we'll see how things turn out. So they take their censers, they take this priestly task before God, and he will choose. It says there, he will bring, good uh, verse 5 with me, the very latter part, says he will choose the one whom he will bring near to him. Which is interesting, Moses doesn't defend God at some level. Moses just simply says, if you think you can come to God on your own terms, if you think you can come to God as you wish, as you will, then God will defend himself. Then God will defend himself. He will show you who it is that he has called unto himself. And Moses is highlighting here that their pride and their pride alone is causing them not to listen to what's already been prescribed to them through the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus. A book filled with different protocols and procedures of how they must approach the the very person of God. But they think they know better than God. And this idea is highlighted for us in verse 11. Look there with me. It says, therefore, it is against not Moses and Aaron that you're really grumbling, guys. It is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. This highlights the fact that these men are filled with pride in such a way that they're not listening to what they've already been told, but they think they know better. I know you maybe aren't like me, but I can identify this in my life in so many different ways. Because God does. God doesn't leave us kind of aimlessly to wander the world to try to figure it out on our own. He actually has given us a record of how He has called us to be as God's people. And yet we, in pride sometimes, we think we know better. Whether it be from marriage or finances or business ethics, whether it be from how to treat our neighbor or any of these variety of things, we think we can do better. And it's the pride in us that kind of acts like those, uh, on the plane when we were traveling last weekend, there was these people, they would wear these big old massive headphones. And I know what they were. They were those noise silencing headphones. You ever heard of those? You put them on and it kind of just takes all the sound away. And you're left to your own thoughts. And this is what pride is. Pride is like putting on noise silencing headphones so that all the things of the world and all God's good commands, and you're just simply left to your own thoughts. And this will do nothing more than destroy you. Because pride is in direct opposition to receiving anything from God, but it's assuming you already know better. Which in reality is a direct attack on God's wisdom itself. What about you? Where does pride show up in your life in this way? How does pride Reveal itself, that you're willing to take the risk of doing it your own way instead of walking in the path that God has said is good and profitable and you will flourish. Where is it that you think you know better than God? But the story doesn't end there. We see it kind of elaborated a little bit more as he speaks, Moses speaks specifically now to to Dathan and Abram in verses 12 through 15. Look there with me. And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abram, the sons of Eliab, and they said... We will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? That you must also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into the land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us the inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, nor have I harmed one of them. What we see here is another nuance of pride. You see, pride not only prevents us from listening because we think we know better, but pride often forgets the past and twists the present. Have you ever had that conversation with someone? You're talking about a story or that you had an interaction with them. And for some reason, it's like they have amnesia about what happened. They're like, well, it didn't happen that way. This is the way it happened. Because pride, sometimes what it does is it causes a filter in our thinking of our past that is only focused on my story and it coming out the way I believe it to be. Look at these. what these men say. They said, is it a small thing that you have brought us out of the land flowing with milk and honey? They're referencing Egypt. They're referencing Egypt, and they're calling Egypt the land flowing with milk and honey. And we know that's anything but the truth. Egypt was a place of oppression, of slavery, of of a variety of difficulties. But these men's pride had so twisted and distorted their past that they now were attributing that to be the place. Flowing with milk and honey. And not only that, but they distort their present. And they're like, Moses, and you haven't even brought us to the land that you promised. They're forgetting that just a few months ago, they had rejected God at the promised land. They were standing on the Jordan. And these men agreed with the ten spies who came back and said, no, no, they're too big. We can't go in. But do you notice that? Do you notice that they create a reality for themselves That is not the true reality. See pride does this. Pride is that sneaky little thing. That alters and twists the present. To fit your narrative. To tell your story the way you want it to be told. Assuring you that that you're right. Have you been there? Have you had that conversation with that person? Whom pride has altered themselves? Or have you been that person? whom your own pride has so twisted the past and the present that you cannot even really see the story that lays before you. Beloved, friends, guests, the effect of pride will bring nothing but frustration to the parties involved because no one can get to the truth. And here in this scene in Numbers, we see that these men have allowed their pride to change their perspective and reject not only Moses, but God himself but God himself. You see, pride keeps us from listening and it alters our perception of reality. And here in this scene, pride has taken such deep root in these men's heart that it keeps them and many others from embracing God and his purposes and his designs for the people of Israel. And we too are that way. Do not think you are unlike the people of Israel. Brothers and sisters, if we allow pride to take root in our lives, we too will fall by the same types of struggles. We can look at God and say, I've got this, God. I'm good. And my question is, are you willing to take that risk? To say, God, I've got this on my own. I can figure it out all by myself. I don't need what you say. I'm a man. I'm a woman. I can do this on my own. Are you willing to take that risk? Are you ready to take that risk and approach God on your own terms, in your own way? Or worse yet, to use God as kind of your scapegoat to get out of hell, but not really live for his ways and his intentions? If so, then I pray this next section we're going to see in 16 is a warning to you that you would heed. Because pride, in this next section we will see, is despising the Lord, and it always comes under judgment. It always comes under judgment. If you were to look there at verse 16, it says, Now Moses said to Korah, he said, Be present with all your company before the Lord, you and they and Aaron tomorrow, and let every one of you take their censer and put incense on it, and every one of you bring it before the Lord. And they did so. And verse 19 says that they assembled all the congregation against the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared before all the congregation. So get this scene in your mind. The glory of the Lord has just appeared. And when the glory of the Lord appears, two facets happen. Either we find great joy, we find great satisfaction, or we are consumed. And it all depends on how you come before his glory. The Bible says in Romans that all have fallen short of the glory of God and are worthy of death. So there's these men, the scene, they, I mean, they had 24 hours. Moses says tomorrow. So, so the next day they show up and, and for some reason they've already forgotten about Aaron's sons, right? In the book of Leviticus, where we see Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons who offered, they were priests, but they did it in a way that was not as God prescribed. And what happened to these two men? Immediately they were consumed by fire. They died. Now these two, these group of people who aren't even priests are going to try to act like they can come to God on their own terms. They're going to do it their own way. Look specifically with it verse 30 with me. It says but if the Lord creates something new this is Moses speaking here and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol. Then you shall know that these men have done what? Despised the Lord. Listen to the words of Proverbs 6. It says, There are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes. Pride. A lying tongue a hand that sheds innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that makes haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. You know what's at the center of every single one of those six things that says the Lord hates? Pride. Pride destroys marriages. Pride destroys families. Pride destroys relationships. Pride, I've heard in multiple times, it will destroy bodies of Christ. If it's allowed to take root, pride destroys. Because pride is the arch enemy of the one who receives God's ways and God's commands. Have you experienced the destruction of your own pride? Maybe it's your home is struggling and the only finger to wag is not at the other person but at your own pride because pride will be judged and we see this proverb in living color here described for us these men and their pride and their rejection of God and his way is to judge them. And he does so in two unique ways. We see here Moses' promise that the earth will open up and take all of them and their possessions into Sheol, Which is basically the, the separation from God and his goodness. We see that happens to these three men. To Korah, to Dathan, and to Abiram. Not only them, but all their family. If you look over verse 31. Says and as soon as he had finished speaking these words, the ground underneath them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and it swallowed them and their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods, so that they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at the cry and said, lest the earth swallow us up. And a fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. Does this shock you? Does this say, why would God do that? I thought God was loving. I thought God was compassionate. Yes, He is. But God will always stand with a strong arm against those who walk in pride. Pride and following God do not mix. I pray that if you know you are walking in pride in this moment, thinking you're good enough, thinking that salvation finds itself at any level within yourself, or even pride where you want to alter or change or distort God or His ways, that in this moment you will see that it will only end in judgment. Complete and total judgment if that's you this morning, then heed the warning of numbers and look not in pride to yourself, but instead embrace God, embrace his ways, his purposes, because only through God and his ways and coming to him on his terms can we find salvation, which is where the very next sections take us to where God begins to confirm his way and show his terms. Look there with me at the three unique ways that we see this in verses chapter sixteen, verse thirty-six through the end of seventeen. First, look there with me at verse thirty-six. It says then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Tell Eleazar the son of Aaron the priest to take up the censers out of the blaze. Then scatter the fire far and wide, for they have become holy—not the people, but the censers." And so, specifically, Moses tells his. Aaron's son to go and get these censers that have been now set apart for my purpose he says beat them out in the plates and and wrap them around the altar in such a way that they will be a remembrance and what is the remembrance there said look at verse 39 it says to be or first 40 excuse me to be a reminder to the people of Israel so that no outsider who is not a descendant of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord lest he look lest he become like Korah and his company. God is is attesting to what he's promised to be true. I've got a purpose. I've got a plan. If you try to alter it, you're at your own risk. And these censers were beaten into plates and covering the altar where sacrifice would happen as a reminder that God alone appoints his mediators. That God alone appoints his mediators. That we cannot try to do it on our own. That we cannot try to make up our own ways like these men did in their pride. These bronze censers were forever going to be a reminder that God affirms His ways, that God alone appoints His mediators. But not only that, look with me at verse 41. You would think they would get it, right? The people of Israel says, but on the very next day, the congregation and the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. And maybe you're like me, I read this and I'm like, guys, what? Come on. What don't you understand about God and His purposes and His design? But you know what? Then I'm quickly reminded by God's Spirit that if it wasn't for God Himself crushing the pride of my own self, that I am just like them. I'm quick to go back to think I can do it the old way. I'm quick to go back to think I have a better way. I'm quick to think I can go back... Because I'm just like these Israelites. And so are you. They began to grumble against the Lord again. And what happens is that that they, they come and the glory of the Lord appears again at the tabernacle and he says to Aaron and Moses, get away from them for I'm going to consume them. I'm going to destroy these people because their pride, their arrogance is so hard in their heart they can't see what's right in front of them. A gracious God who is willing to provide a way of salvation for a people that are undeserving. And what's beautiful is that Moses... He says, Aaron, quickly, take your censer because you're the true high priest. Take your censer, put fire from the altar on it, and run down to the people. And look at what happens when he runs down to the people. Look with me there at verse 46. Moses says to Aaron, take your censer, put fire in it off the altar, and lay incense on it, carry it quickly to the congregation to make atonement for them. For the wrath of God has gone out from the Lord, and the plague has begun. So Aaron took it. As Moses said, and he ran into the midst of the assembly, and behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put incense on it, and he made atonement for people, and he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. Wow. Can you imagine the scene? Can you imagine the scene? Remember how they encamped. They encamped in groups around the altar. And from the center where the tabernacle and the altar were, Moses saw that the plague had started. And he said, Aaron, go take some coals, take some incense, and run so that they might have hope for the plague to stop. And he's running. And he runs past one that's dead, two that's dead, three that's dead, hundred, three thousand, five thousand, fourteen thousand dead. And He stands between those who are dead and those who are living. And He makes atonement. The censor, as the high priest. He makes a way for death to be defeated. God was attesting to the very things which He said to be true. That Aaron is my chosen high priest. That He is the one who stands between the living and the dead. Because God's chosen priest alone can stand between the living and the dead. There is no other. We can't choose, church, who's to stand between the living and the dead. We can't find the best, most righteous one that's ever been and say, you, you go in our place. Because God alone not only chooses mediators, but God alone chooses the only one that can stand between the living and the dead. We see this And vivid colors right here at the end of chapter 16. But not only that, look at verse 1 of chapter 17 as God confirms his way with another miraculous sign. Just to confirm, just to attest, just to to validate all that God has already been showing through these variety of things. God says to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and get from them staffs, each For each father's, one for each of the father's house, from all the chiefs according to their father's house, twelve staffs, and write a man's name on his staff, and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi, for there should be one staff for the head of each of the father's house. So here's the thing. They had staffs back then that they would use to walk around. Remember, they're, they're all wandering people. So they had staffs like you do if you go on a long hike. And each one of them representing the chief among the people of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they're to write their name on it. And he tells Moses, take these all and put Aaron's name on the one for the tribe of Levi and set it in the tabernacle. And he says, I'm going to do something miraculous before your eyes. The one whom I choose, the one whom I appoint, the one whom is according to my ways, their staff will bud. It will produce flowers. And we see, if we continue to read the story, look there with me at verse 8. It says, On the next day, Moses went in the tent of testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron from the house of Levi has sprouted and brought forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. One staff out of all the other staffs produced what God promised it would produce blossoms not only blossoms but ripe almonds and if you're familiar with any of the prophetic literature in the bible then we would remember that almond has a significant value here it's one of the ways that some of the minor prophets especially jeremiah who is a major prophet he highlights that that it's one of the first blossoms after the harsh winters is the almond plant and the prophets sometimes referred to this as the, as the watchman's seed. The watchman's seed. Because when they had the harsh winters when nothing was blooming and nothing was harvesting, the first blossom that they would see, the first reminder that our God still cares, that our God is still watching over us, was the almonds. And this is the flower that God chooses to declare, I am still watching over my people, but it's by my terms, but it's by my ways. And it's Aaron's staff budding and producing these almonds because God chooses His watchman. He confirms His ways with miraculous signs. And again, much like the censers that were beaten and placed as a reminder, this staff of Aaron was called to be placed in the testimony, the Ark of the Covenant, as a reminder against the grumbling of the people lest they too should die. And Moses did as he was said. But look at verses 12 and 13. You see, they kind of get it. They're finally starting to understand a little bit. Look at verse 12. It says, The people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish. We're undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? Perish? They're finally beginning to see the reality that anyone who tries by their own ways, by their own terms, to come before the Lord and His holiness, His goodness and His might and glory will perish. But that last question, are we all to perish? Are we all to perish? Whoever draws near to the tabernacle will perish. What's interesting about The three ways that God confirms his path, his purpose. They're all a glimpse. They're all a foretaste of God's ultimate way of any way of drawing near to him. We saw the first one that God alone chooses his mediator. Does anyone know what 1 Timothy 2.5 says? It says there is one mediator between God and man. Who? Christ Jesus. He chose Christ. He sent Christ. He alone is the better Aaron. He alone is the greater high priest. He's not of the line of Aaron. As we read from Hebrews, he's of the line of who? Melchizedek. You're like, who's that? What's an eternal line that we see fulfilled and, and displayed in Genesis that then the author of Hebrews says it's the eternal line because Aaron, guess what? Every single one of his descendants is dead. That priestly line is no more. But the line of Christ, the high priest of the line of Melchizedek, he is alive and he is the only mediator between God and man. Not only that, we see that Jesus is the better servant, the one who stands between the living and the dead. This is testified as we see when Christ's death occurred, when Christ breathed his last and he declared it is finished. The veil between the curtain was what? Torn in two. This curtain was the separating of those. If you want to live, you're on this side. If you want to die, go on this side. And that was torn. And now there's not a curtain between the living and the dead. Now there is a man, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. He stands before the living and the dead. And not only that, we see that he testified to Aaron through miraculous signs. Look at the book of John. This is one of his key highlights. He says, time after time, Jesus was attested to by many signs and wonders. Jesus would speak the truth, and that God would reveal His truth is in His Son, Jesus Christ, with many miraculous signs and wonders. From the healing of a blind man, to the making of, of enough, a meal for 5,000, to walking on water, to all variety of things. Jesus is the confirmed way of God. So any of you here today and you're walking in your pride thinking that you can come near to God on your own know that you will meet the same fate of Korah and these people. And maybe you're like I was many years ago saying well then what can we do? Are we all to perish? And the Bible says no, there is a way. The great watchman Christ himself. For he took our death. He took our sin. He took our judgment. For any one of us who in humility would cast ourselves on Him, is that you today, brothers and sisters? Oh, is pride beginning to reach its tentacles deep into your soul? Thinking you can do it on your own. It's one of the beautiful things we see here in chapter 18. You may read and you're like, how in the world does this connect to this section before? Well, it's a reiteration. It's a it's an explanation again of the reality of who the Levites and the priests were to be, and in humility we're called to receive them with joy, according to God's plans. Look there with me in verse one of chapter 18. so, so the Lord stood to, said to Aaron, you and your sons in your father's house shall bear the iniquity connected. "...with the sanctuary, and you and your sons, with you shall bear the iniquity connected with your priesthood. And you, with you, bring also your brothers, also the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that you may join and minister to you while you and your sons are with with you, are before the tent of meeting." Listen to this language here. "...you shall keep guard over, they shall keep guard over you and over the whole tent." but shall not come near to the vessels of the sanctuary, the altar, lest you die. They shall join you and keep guard over the tent of meeting and call into service, so that no outsider shall come near, and you shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar, that they may never again have be never that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. In this language of God's providing a way, God's providing a way, God's providing a way, and it's not on the terms of Korah, it's not on the terms of anyone. It says, I will appoint, I will provide, I will make a way that will set a guard around the dwelling place of God where we can commune with him. And extraordinarily God God says, I will make a way. In every single situation in this section, we see it's a foretaste and a portrait of Christ himself. He alone entered into the true tabernacle of God. He alone drank of the full, complete wrath of God, truly being connected with the iniquity of his people in such a way that now we can come into the presence of God by repentance and faith. But this Cannot be received if pride is dwelling deep in your heart. It cannot. For pride still says, I am gonna bring just a little bit of my own. God, I'm gonna give you 80%. I'm gonna bring, I'm gonna provide the 20% rest. Brothers and sisters, the word time and time again says that no one can come before God on their own. That there was the priesthood pointing to the sacrifice of Christ Himself. And He alone. And this can only be received in humility. Look there again with me at verse 7. It's the first time this is spoken of, of the priest. It says, You and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood. For all that concerns the altar and all that is within the veil, speaking of the veil that separated the Holy of Holies and God's presence from the people, it says, And you shall serve. Listen to this I give your priesthood as a what? Gift. First time that the priesthood is called a gift to God's people. And the scriptures, and when the beauty of this is, is, is God saying that I'm going to provide something that you cannot provide for yourself. I'm going to give you a way to be with me. And this can only be received in humility. Throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to whom? The humble. Those who willingly say, I can do nothing of my own. God, you've provided a way. But what's beautiful is that if you continue to read this, this longer section of 8 through 32, it begins to talk about not only is the priesthood a gift to the people, but then the people are going to be pro- provide for the priest. You see, because one of the ways we know that your salvation is genuine, that it's real, that it's not an arrogance, is that you then give of all of yourself for the good of his ways. We see this reality of a tithe given in verses eight through thirty-two. There's some beautiful language saying that that God, the God said, you know, priest, you're you're not going to have an inheritance when you get to the land because I'm your inheritance, I'm your portion. He says, but I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to give you a gift through these people. These people, because they believe that you, the priesthood, are exactly the only way that they can find relationship with me, that they're willing to give of themselves completely to this, to care for you, their sacrifice, their firstborn of this, they're gonna pay their tithes, they're gonna do all these variety things, and it's just listed out. This is God saying, I'm gonna take care of you priests. And we see God provided a glorious gift to his people in the tribe of Levi and a way to acknowledge that they're willing to receive this in humility and gratefulness is then to care for their needs in God-ordained ways. Several different things are explained here. But the big idea is that the tribe of Levi, their portion is God. And God will provide for them through the giving of others. Is this not also a portrait of the church? Because one of the interesting things, I know this, this is one of those times where you hear a preacher talk about, but, but it's the reality. There's the conversion of the heart, then there's the conversion of the life, the wallet. Because we can see whether in pride you're, you're clinging still to your ways, but if you're willing to say, God, I, my life is your own, use it as you please. Use it as you please, and I'm going to give myself to the furthering of your kingdom. I'm going to support your ministry through the local church and through missionaries who go to the nation's. Humility rejoices in God's plans by giving support to his ways. Does God need the money? No. He, he says in the scriptures, I have a thousand cattle on a thousand hills. If I had anything to give you, I wouldn't even tell you. But I don't have a need. But this is one of the ways we display that pride has been crushed within us, that our hearts are no longer clinging to my kingdom, to my ways, that I now give all of myself. And that means resources, life, breath, everything for the furthering of God's kingdom through the church, because that's how God is advancing his kingdom. So as we draw near to the end of this section, let's do some self-examination. I don't want you to think about your spouse. I don't want you to think about your children or your neighbor or your boss who is the one who you think is the one that has the pride problem. Instead, let's look at ourselves and answer these questions. Am I unwilling to listen because I think I'm always right? I think numbers gives us a glimpse that this may be a pride problem. pride does not like to listen but thinks it knows what is right have you ever been accused of distorting or altering reality misconstruing the facts of the past and distorting the present and maybe this is a glimpse that pride still resides within you do you still think you can come to god on your own terms And based on the authority of Scripture, I just plead with you this morning, if you say yes to any of those, then apart from Christ, there will be judgment. But Christ did come. He is the great priest he is the one who is the provider he is the mediator he is attested to by signs and wonders the greatest of which is his resurrection from the dead look to christ if you said yes to any of these and in humility, ask him. Say, God, humble me. God, break the selfish man within me because I want to love my wife better. I want to treat my children the way that you called. I want to serve the church as you've called. So, Father, crush the pride that is within me and show me Christ. And let's see how the Lord changes your life. Would you pray with me? Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information about our church, feel free to visit us at calvarybcmoultry.com. We hope you will join us again next time. Until then, grace and peace.